For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The chairman of the House Appropriations Committee is renting a garage apartment from an energy lobbyist. Campaign reports show Representative Kevin Wallace has paid $350 a month from Ken Miller, a former House Appropriations chairman and now lobbyist for OG&E. While it's not illegal or a violation of ethics rules, Ryan, does this give the appearance of impropriety? Well, and that's just, the, that's it, is it's all about appearance. Everything seems to be above board right now, and there's no allegations of illegal activity here. I think it's really important to put that out there. And then, then there's just the bigger question of, you know, what does this do whenever you've got the chairman of appropriations renting from one of the most high-powered lobbyists at the state capitol? You know, when you talk about the benefit that a lobbyist brings to an organization, the greatest benefit that they bring is access. And, you know, there's the question then, does this give him greater access to uh, the chairman of appropriations in the state house of representatives? I don't know that it does. I mean, there's really no sense that, you know, he's going to this garage apartment and they're sitting in the background of fire pit talking business at the end of the night. I mean, that could be happening. We, we just, we just don't know that right now. Um, you know, I think that anytime you're a legislator, but in particular, one of the most powerful legislators in the, in the state of Oklahoma, you know, there's the uh, question for chairman Wallace is this worth the headline? You know, not not is it worth uh, you know the potential legal consequences because they don't seem to be any, but is it worth the headline? And you know, everybody's you know attention span right now it, it is what it is, <laughs> and you know I doubt that this is going to have a lot of bandwidth in his district. I doubt that it would have a lot of bandwidth in any sort of political contest in the future, whether it's for re-election or for a higher office. Um, and then it's so I mean the the equation of you know whether you should should or not do uh, do this. You know, I, I don't think that there's going to be a big fallout here. Neva? I would agree. I don't think there's a fallout. I think it's always something that uh, gives rise to a lot of uh, raised eyebrows and people kind of uh, speculating and the, and the fodder that goes with it. But, you know, as you say, I mean, the arrangement is not illegal. It doesn't violate state ethics rules. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's really about uh, more about their, their positions than it is about uh, anything else. I mean, as you say, I mean, the appropriations chair, a lobbyist, but in terms of access, I mean, I would argue that uh, it, that particularly here in the state of Oklahoma, you don't have an issue with uh, folks having access to their lawmakers. I mean, whether it's uh, via a lobbyist that they've contracted with to uh, help uh, facilitate conversations or uh, the entities or individuals themselves, I mean, th there is plenty of access uh, at the state capitol to, to lawmakers and, and even the folks that are the powerful chairs of the committees and, and those that are in leadership that make things happen. So I think it's more, you know, again, does it does it pass the smell test? Is it uh, does it give the appearance of uh, something that might be improper? Uh, whether those things, uh, in the eye of people you know, speculating, uh, want to keep that uh, want to keep that going. The bottom line is it's not illegal and it doesn't violate any rules. And so, uh, with that with that regard, I mean, it's really no, nothing more than just a passing story. And do you, do, does it bother you that uh, when Ken Miller being a, the, basically having uh, Wallace's former job as House Prop? Appropriations chairman. Well, and and then before that, uh, state so state treasurer in between those right. two jobs. I mean, yeah, I mean it, it, there there is the there is the appearance of of impropriety here, but there's really no evidence of impropriety. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe ten years ago, and you know, Neva is a political consultant. You know, she she may weigh in on this too. But ten years ago, if a client came to her and said, "Hey, I'm going to go rent uh, a garage apartment from an, a lobbyist at a major corporation in the state of Oklahoma that has business in front of my committee." 
uh, my ethics lawyer says that I can do this. Politically, should I do this? Ten years ago, you may say, no way. You know, the mailer that says, you know, in bed with lobbyists, you know, right. you know, you know liter- literally, you know, share, you know, next, you know, <laughs> next door. I mean, that could be a really damaging deal. But now, I mean, this morning on the way here, I'm, I'm listening to reports of the president uh, uh, directing foreign governments to interfere in the 2020 presidential election. And you've got, you know, there's there are two sides to that, right? I mean, so you know, the the idea of you know what is controversial today uh, versus ten years ago. I mean, I think if you're a political consultant today, it's like, yeah, not the best idea, but it's certainly not going to tank your well, career. Well, let's remember that uh, whether it's the political candidate, the elected official, the lobbyist, they have rules to follow, and they have uh, ethics rules. They have uh, specific things that are uh, in in the uh, in the rules that they must follow, and there is a great deal of uh, disclosure. I mean, lobbyists mm-hmm. that deal with lawmakers. I mean, when they take them to dinner, that has to be disclosed. I mean, anything over the twenty five dollars. I mean, it is disclosed, and so I think this notion that somehow there's these, just these thousands of dollars just you know being spread around makes no difference at all because it's a bogus argument. Governor Stitt wants grant applications from all state agencies to go through his office. Under the, an executive order, Stitt calls on his budget secretary, former state senator Mike Mazie, and the appropriate cabinet secretary to approve applications of more than $50,000. Neva, why would the governor want to do this? Well, it, it's a, it again, I think it's this uh, effort on the part of the governor to uh, uh, to kind of infuse himself into the entire uh, process and be much more hands-on, have a, have a, uh, a governor's office that uh, has much more power than in the past. And this consolidation of power, I think it's going to be interesting to see um, uh, how that uh, how that mixes with the lawmakers and everyone else in in terms of uh, whether they they believe this is appropriate or whether they believe this is an overreach. And so I think there are a lot of questions. Uh, certainly, I mean, his argument that it's a transparency measure that they want to make sure that uh, uh, that these uh, uh, the, these dollars coming in, uh, they know where they're coming from and what they're for, and that we're not just uh, getting money that's going to cost us a lot more money on the backside, uh, you know, with a grant or something like that. So I, I think this is going to kind of open up a much broader uh, dialogue on this, and it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is. So far, there hasn't been much reaction. Ryan. Yeah, well, if you look at the the reporting that Nondoc did on this, Trey Savage's article, he talks about how this is just another example of the governor expanding the power of the executive in the state of Oklahoma. He talks about you know, the selection of captain agencies, uh, you know, this is, uh, and, and other measures that he's uh, instituted to try to turn an otherwise weak governor's office in the state of Oklahoma into a much more powerful gubernatorial office uh, that he's in control of. And, you know, so that's, I mean, that's interesting. You, you know, now you've got Republicans in power in the legislature that don't really seem to be, you know, fighting the power grab that does upset the separation of powers a little bit here. Um, now, I will say that, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that the other power grabs by this governor haven't really created a lot of bureaucracy. I mean, they, they've really been efforts. He talks about this one as part of transparency, but the others have been streamline uh, streamlining government, efficiency in government. This creates a, a whole layer of bureaucracy that could slow down and actually hinder grant applications by state agency directors. Now, the argument that, well, if we if we get into these deals and we create a program and then the money goes away, we've got an obligation to keep the program. Well, sure, that's, that's the way with any dollar that we appropriate at the state level. We have to make those decisions year to year whether we're going to continue to invest in those. My concern here is that we're 
uh, as Re- Representative Virgin, the Democratic leader in the House, said, we're not trusting these bureaucratic state employees, these long-term career employees in state agencies to make these decisions about bringing federal dollars, a lot of times federal dollars, to the state of Oklahoma, investing in services. We could potentially lose some of those dollars now. Well, it's federal and, and other dollars, as yeah, you say. Yeah. It's public and private foundations, um, uh, individuals, nonprofit organizations. I mean, that's the 50000 threshold that they're saying, the 100000 on the federal grants, and they've exempted higher ed and FEMA and, you know, a number of uh, things that uh, – that they specifically outline. But I think the bigger question is exactly what you said, Ryan, is how is it going to function? And, you know, you have, I mean, you have these cabinet secretaries now, uh, many of whom have come into their positions with not a lot of institutional knowledge, not a lot of background. And the these uh, grants that uh, oftentimes are talked about that can be millions of dollars are extremely complex. They're on very rigid uh, timelines. And so it's, it's going to require an awful lot of efficiency on the part of the folks that are kind of on, going to be on the hot seat ultimately, because it's, it potentially is a great idea, the great idea has to deliver and I think that's where the governor's office is going to have to make sure if they want to go down this road that they really uh, can make sure it performs at the level that everybody will expect. And there was talk about uh, the lawmakers possibly doing this law. Lawmakers had considered making a law that said this and one of the things that came up in an argument against that was there are thousands that go on every year. And, and I think that you know lawmakers and the executive will tell you that we're doing a better job of a state as a state of knowing where grant dollars are coming from and where they're going and having a better picture of how that plays into our state budget. And when we talk about revenue, grants are a part of the revenue. And I think for the longest time, we haven't had a really good picture of where those grants are coming in, how they're appropriated, how long they're going to be there. Lawmakers have a much better picture of that today, and they should continue to improve that picture. Now, you know, as Neva said, you know, we, we don't know how this bureaucracy is going to work here. Um, you know, I think one of the, the real problems is, you know, when we look at these state agency directors, do they do they have the skill sets to go in to dig into these grant applications? And if they do, uh, then how long does that actually take? And, you know, I'm, I'm really worried that we end up leaving dollars on the table. What would be interesting, we haven't seen this in the reporting, is was there a particular grant that came in or we didn't get or, you know, was mismanaged or something like that? that spurred this conversation within the governor's office. You know, and it's interesting, too, when uh, Secretary Maisie was Senator Maisie, I mean, he he co-authored a bill that that abolished a number of boards and commissions, and one of those was the Joint Committee on Federal Funds, which was in charge at the time for the oversight of of all of the grant applications. So, I mean, the pendulum swings back and (laughs) forth. I mean, the bottom line is, when you've got 30% of your state budget coming from federal dollars, much of that in that 1.9 uh, or the $19 billion total budget uh, comes from, from grants, mm-hmm. then this is something that I think everyone has to not just kind of sleep, you know, kind of slide by, but pay a lot of attention to. Well, and I, I, I again, I think that there's probably a story. I mean, I, I don't doubt that, there, that the intention of doing this is what the governor's saying it is, but I bet there, there's a story underneath all of this that spurred this conversation in the well, governor's office. Well, and again, office. how does this play into LOFT, the Legislative Oversight Committee? I mean, right. you have all of the, uh, you know, we have this, uh, uh, this great uh, desire to have a lot of oversight and transparency, what they've got to do is be able to make sure that they can actually deliver on that. Those are great words, but you've got to deliver on the promise. 
Governor Stitt's pick to head the land office is coming under scrutiny. According to the Oklahoma Watch, acting Secretary Brant Vauter lacks the advanced degree needed to take the job on a permanent basis, and he owned a company involved in legal disputes over oil and gas leases. Ryan, how big of a deal is this? I think it's a pretty big deal. And, and you know, for me, you know, the, the advanced degree requirement, you know, that came in after there had been some scandal uh, in the land commission office, uh, you know, about a decade back. And, you know, there was a sense that, you know, if we increase the requirements, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to say, you know, this, we have this credentials race in the United States where, you know, we basically say, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this in order to get that job. I think that that disqualifies a whole lot of folks, uh, other that are otherwise qualified. So, you know, these arbitrary credentials, unless you've got to have like a license, you know, like a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. Um, you know, I, I do think that yeah, it's time in our, in our state's history to reconsider, you know, what those, what those credentials actually look like. But the other story here that I think is, you know, goes beyond this is, Governor Stitt bringing in people from the private sector to run these state agencies. And I think that what he's falling into is there this myth of private sector compatibility that if you've done well in the private sector, that that automatically translates to your ability to be an administrator in the public service sector. You know, some of our best public servants and and our leaders right now uh, in the state of Oklahoma and around the nation are career public servants. They've been there. They've done this. You know, there's not there's not a perfect translation from the private sector to the public sector. People in the public sector go to the private sector and fail. People go to the private sector to the public sector and fail. And so this, I do think that there's this sense of uh, compatibility that's overstated. We're also looking at something called the Peter Principle. And the Peter Principle says that if you're competent at one thing, that if we just keep promoting you to greater and greater management and administrative uh, responsibilities, that you'll be good at that as well. And so we promote people to the point of their incompetence, and then they just stay there. Uh, and I think that there's part of that as well, that you know this gentleman may have done, you know, Vader may have done well in the private sector, and I think that that's debatable at this point, but does that then translate to his ability to perform as a public servant? Neva? Well, I think it's going to be interesting because what, what we have is an acting uh, an acting person in this role. Uh, and that means that the, the governor, they're going to have to come to the legislature uh, with someone who's been on the job in, an, in the acting capacity for about seven months when session starts and uh, say, we want this, you know, we need uh, we need. Uh, we need something changed so that uh, he, in fact, can be uh, can be moved through the process and become and become the uh, uh, take the acting off and make him the guy. And so, will that happen? We've seen it happen twice in the last session uh, where uh, where there were degree issues and they were taken away. So I think it's uh, I think that's certainly you know a very real possibility that that can take place. But I think the bigger question is, uh, as you say, Ryan, is finding folks that are that are the that can do the job. I mean, his predecessor, Harry Birdwell, had been there for eight years. So obviously well-established in, in, in the role, knew what was going on. And most people don't pay any attention to some of these agencies. Right. But when you think of the commissioner uh, of the state lands, I mean, they own and manage 750,000 acres of land in Oklahoma, which makes, them, makes the agency the second largest owner of real estate in the state. I mean, that's something to kind of pause mm-hmm. and think about. And the trust, uh, uh, permanent trust investments by the land officer over $2.4 billion. So this is not some small little commission or agency that, uh, you know, people can kind of just not pay much attention to. And where does where do those dollars have the most impact? They're tied to education. Right. So, I mean, it, you know, in some in some measure, it's a little surprising that some of the education folks who like to tune it up and and uh, get mad over a lot of things haven't, uh, uh, haven't had really much to say about this issue at all. So he may fly through, he may, he may uh, prove to be the 
guy that is the best, you know, position for this job, and uh, and and that's kind of the, what what will happen when uh, when we get into the legislative session. But right now, I mean, it is an issue of transparency moving forward and keeping keeping this dialogue open. When questions have come up, uh, he certainly hasn't answered any. He's been he he's basically deflected them back to the governor's office. So you know, will that uh, will that create an atmosphere where he doesn't uh, you know doesn't uh, you know have a lot of rapport with the the people that he's going to be interacting with the most? I don't know. We'll just wait and see. And when we talk about transparency, he's managing this, like you said, this enormous portfolio of assets, uh, largely for the benefit of Comet Education. You know, he has said that he's divested himself from his uh, business dealings that would have a, you know, some potential conflict with this. His wife apparently still has some uh, assets that are at play there. You know, those questions, you know, to me, more so than an advanced degree, having clear uh, rules for how you divest yourself, maybe put stuff in a blind trust, and having a clear formula of how that happens and then how you disclose that to the people of Oklahoma, that to me is the, the better check on, on, on corruption. And I think that is a key point because the last two folks in that job, I mean, now Attorney General Mike Hunter yep. and uh, Harry Birdwell, I mean, both of those put their assets uh, in trust or blind trust uh, while they were in office. So I think that does set a standard and does set something that will will be something I'm sure that lawmakers, when they go through the process, go through this process of asking questions of, the, of this particular nomination of the governor uh, that they'll want to see what the answers are. And Neva, you may prove him still at the end of the end yeah. session. Yeah. And, and Neva, you mentioned the, the two exceptions to the degree requirements that the legislature, you know, changed. Corrections one, and OJA. Yeah. And one of those, you know, uh, Director Albaugh uh, turned out to be, you know, one of the, the mm-hmm. best administrators, I think, and, and respected on both sides of the aisle, one of the best administrators of the Department of Corrections that we could have asked for. And, you know, he would have otherwise been disqualified. So, I mean, you know, to me, you know, these, these arbitrary credential requirements could act in a way to prevent us from getting the person that we need. Epic Virtual Charter School sends a cease and desist order to a lawmaker who has regularly criticized the school. Senator Ron Sharp is ordered to stop what Epic calls defamation and accusations related to the school. Neva, as a disclaimer, Senator Sharp is a client of yours, but I want to know how you feel about this order. Well, I, f- I feel like we're, as we've talked about in the past, I mean, this is a give and take uh, kind of fight between uh, Epic uh, Epic and and, uh, and Senator Sharp. I mean, it's really this uh, this back and forth. And, and at the end of at, at the end of all of it, I mean, as Senator Sharp said, I mean, uh, it, it is something that that requires scrutiny. He believes as a senator in his role, he can ask questions, he can ask for information, uh, whether the entity being asked of likes it or not. I mean, that's where the, that's where the given, you know, give and take comes. But I mean, they can, they can, you know, they can send a cease and desist, but he can respond in, in like fashion. And I think, I think we're, what we're seeing is just something that uh, is a backdrop to what we know are ongoing investigations by the OSBI, the FBI, uh, even the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Federal Department of Education. I mean, they're a legal arm involved uh, in some measure. How, to what extent, I don't think anyone really knows at this point. So, I mean, these are issues that from a legislative perspective, again, they're going to have to address some of these issues. I mean, it's less about the, the specific players right now involved and more about what it what it does long-term in the conversation about virtual and charter schools. Right. You know, if I were a political consultant or legal counsel at the Epic Charter Schools, I would have just advised a, a thousand percent again. I mean, this is this is epic failure. I mean, I, I I think that they have set themselves up here. They've created this red line. Uh, they've asked for not only don't do anything in the future, but they want a retraction and an apology, basically, from Senator Sharp. <laughs> They're not going to get that. Uh, and you know, again, you know, I don't 
I don't know. Uh, I'm not weighing in on the, the validity of Senator Sharp's accusations that he's made. But the fact that he's made them in his capacity as a state senator gives him a wide latitude of immunity uh, from defamation lawsuits. And so if Epic now, they've created this red line, they said, do all this stuff by this deadline. And if you don't, we're going to sue you. If they sue Senator Sharp, not only do I think that he has immunity, but it opens up the discovery process. And, you know, so then that goes both ways. And I promise you that the documents that Epic would end up having to produce, because truth you know, even if he's not immune, truth is an absolute defense. So even if he's susceptible to a defamation lawsuit, truth defends you. Mm -hmm. And he would have the opportunity to produce the evidence that he believes demonstrates that what he's saying is truth. And he probably have access to that through discovery. This is a bad move here. I mean, they've got, they are, they are fighting so many wars on so many fronts right now. Um, and to open up a new front on a single state Senator, uh, I, I know what they're trying to do, or at least I imagine what they're trying to do is to create some distraction from all of the other problems that they've got. This is the wrong way to do it. And I think that they've just exposed themselves to a terrific amount of liability here. Well, and it, it clearly, as I say, is something that's going to go through the legislative um, process next year. And, you know, ne at the end of next year, it will go through the political process because it will be political campaign season. Mm -hmm. Senator Sharp will be up for reelection. Uh, so, I mean, I think you have a lot of I, I think you have a lot of issues here, but they mirror what could happen in just virtually any any conversation, whether it's about education or commerce or uh, corrections or you name the gamut. I mean, any senator with any entity that they want to square off, that's not uncommon. The only thing that's different here in my mind is the escalation of it to the point that both seem to be, it's who gets the headline first and the, you know, day in and day out in this ongoing sparring. Well, and if you want to lose credibility with lawmakers, uh, even if it's even if it's an opponent of yours, don't. If you're in an institution and you're out at the Capitol and you're trying to get something to happen, going to sue somebody that disagrees with you vocally uh, is is really it's not really. And some a good of this to, information will be interesting before session. I mean, we'll know what the enrollment figures are. You know, the fall enrollment figures. There's some speculation that with the you know with some of these uh, uh, virtual and charter schools that the enrollment is up, not down. Um, will that be true? I mean, so I I think it just so muddies the water for the bigger questions and issues that need to be addressed both legislatively and on the education front for the education folks. And this just, uh, you know, as I say, just kind of, it, it, I think it's something from the public standpoint, you can get too much of it to where they finally tune it out because they can't sort through who's saying what and who do you want to believe and what's, you know, what's, you know, fact or fiction. And so I think at the end of all of that, you've, you've got exactly what we see over and over again is this type of really uh, political squabble. And, and no disrespect to my friends in the state Senate or in the state House of Representatives. I'm mean, speaking as, as a former member myself. I think Epic's wildly overestimating the number of people that read press releases out of the state legislature. I mean, so <laughs> you know, if, if they've done anything, they've just made sure more people are reading Senator Sharp's press release. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management.